Well, welcome and thank you all for joining us here today. We're all here to discuss uh, one of the most important issues in K-12 education reform, national standards. And uh, the Bush administration recently drove an unprecedented, unprecedented expansion of federal spending on and involvement in K-12 education, largely through No Child Left Behind. The Obama administration, as in so many other things, has doubled down on that expanded federal role. Race to the Top Fund has positioned them as the judge of K-12 reforms at the state level and encouraged the adoption of national education standards. There's been talk of tying federal funds, other federal funds as well, to uh, the adoption of national standards. Standards and accountability reforms have been tried at the state level and, and uh, left advocates disappointed. And so naturally, eyes turn to the, uh, to the federal government to solve this issue. Recently, a consortium adopted draft common core standards that are serving as the model for national education standards. Clearly, there's a renewed drive towards centralization. Ironically, another reform movement is pushing in the exact opposite dire direction. Uh, school choice reformers want to decentralize control and put more power in the hands of parents and taxpayers. And so it seems most people have decided that the middle ground really isn't working. But can we have both centralized education policy and effective school choice? Are these two pursuits compatible? Which direction is most promising? And what evidence do we have to weigh in favor or against each approach? To sort through these questions and uh, provide some answers, uh, we have with us a fine panel today. First, we have our own Neil McCluskey, Associate Director of the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. Neil has researched and written on a range of topics, including school choice, social conflicts fostered by our public school system, higher education, and federal education policy. In fact, uh, don't miss his book, Feds in the Classroom, available right out there. Neil holds a master's degree in political science from Rutgers University, and in addition to his research in writing, he has served in the U.S. Army, taught high school English, and was a freelance reporter covering municipal government and education in suburban New Jersey. Yes, New Jersey, so he is well-placed to discuss government dysfunction. Sandra Boyd is the vice president of Strategic Communications and Outreach for Achieve, Inc., an education reform organization created by the nation's governors and corporate leaders to help raise academic standards and achievement. Sandra is leading their, their effort to ensure all high school graduates are prepared for success by making college and career readiness a national priority. She was vice president of human resources policy for the National Association of Manufacturers. Her advocacy there dealt with workplace issues including education, training, competitiveness, immigration, labor, and employment. As a lawyer, Sandra has served as a general counsel for the Labor Policy Association, practiced law at Epstein, Becker, and Green, and served as an adjunct professor at the George Washington University National Law Center. Lindsay Burke researches and writes on federal and state education issues as a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Her work has been cited by the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Fox News. She has also been quoted in Time and Newsweek, but we won't hold that against her here. <laughs> Lindsay earned a Master's of Teaching degree in Foreign Language Education from the University of Virginia, and she has also taught high school French in Virginia as well. She's written about education issues in a large number of print and online media, and has spoken to a wide range of audiences from Capitol Hill to small school choice communities. 
Mike Petrilli is Vice President for National Programs and Policy at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, where he oversees all research projects and publications, including the widely read Education Gadfly Bulletin. He's also a research fellow at the Stanford University's Hoover Institution, executive editor of Education Next, and contributor to Fordham's famous flypaper blog. Mike served as Associate Assistant Deputy Secretary in the Office of Innovation and Improvement in the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, one of the longest titles I've ever read. Certainly. Only in Washington, yes. Yes, yeah. I, I'm sure there's longer ones, but um, he oversaw a range of grant programs there supporting uh, uh, various education reforms and helped to implement the No Child Left Behind Act. Mike has also served as Vice President of Community Partnerships at K-12, an internet education company, and as a teacher at the Joy Outdoor Education Center in Clarksville, Ohio. Um, thank you all again for joining us here, and with that, I'll turn it over to Neil McCluskey. Um, I want to thank, first of all, everybody for coming out today, and I especially want to thank our panelists for coming. And I have an especially big thank you to, to Mike Petrilli, who really helped me to hone the title of this event. Now, I almost called it National Curriculum Standards, not Education Standards, Hopeful Change or Hollow Promise. He saved me from making the gigantic and potentially shameful blunder of using the term curriculum to describe standards that lay out specific things that kids must learn in specific subjects at specific times. Absurdly using the term curriculum in that context, Mike told me, would enrage right-wingers intent on keeping the federal government out of school curricula. Heaven knows I don't want to make anybody mad about federal intrusion in school curricula, so I want to thank you especially, Mike, for that. But anyway, now, on to, well, I'm just going to call them national curriculum standards. And this is something that's long been desired by, by many people in education policy, including Mike and the Fordham Foundation. And they're heading right for us. Today, at about 10 o'clock, the final Common Core State Standards Initiative proposed national standards came out. And federal money has been attached to adopting these national standards since Race to the Top came out, $4.35 billion uh, federal program. And if President Obama has his way, at least from what we can tell so far, adopting national standards will be connected to the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is sort of the primary federal education law and a very big source of education funds. Unfortunately, now that national standards have been released, we're likely to get bogged down in a debate about what is actually in those standards, which, of course, is important. I mean, you'd want to know what's in the standards. But we actually have to first tackle somebody else. We've jumped the gun by having the standards come out because we haven't actually had a national debate about whether or not having national standards themselves is a good thing, whether or not there's reason to believe that will actually improve American education. So what are the arguments that have been offered for national standards? Well, the first thing I'd say is weak. That's what they are. The first one that I hear often is that a modern standard, a modern, a modern nation, a modern economy must have one standard. And my question is why? This has never been explained well to me. Why does one nation have to have a single standard in the modern economy? It's actually definitely not the case in other realms of, our, uh, of economics um, where we've seen that freedom it's what drives innovation, it drives competition, it's what drives economic growth. And what seems ironic about this to me is that 
one of the major drivers behind the national standards movement is fear that we will be outpaced economically by nations like India and China. Well, the clear lesson from India and China is that they have learned you have to decentralize power in your economy, let people be free, be innovative to compete with the United States. Now, certainly there are issues of their size and things like that. But it seems ironic that our answer to that competition, other countries learning the power of freedom, is to say we need centralization of our schools. Next is the argument that basically 2 plus 2 equals 4 whether you're in California or in Maine. That's true. I mean, there are lots of things we teach that are sort of truths no matter where you live. The problem is all states are different, all communities are different, and most especially all kids are different, different desires, abilities, talents. And so what you need is not to set one standard that says all kids will learn X, Y, or Z at exactly the same time across the country, but to have an education system where you can tailor education to the needs and desires and abilities and talents of individual kids. That means not one national standard nor 50 state standards, but a system of school choice and freedom. Finally, this is the one that really takes the cake for me, and I'm, I'm going to use it to move into the empirical research, but almost every country that beats us on international comparisons has national standards, we are told. And that is true. Now let's look at the empirical evidence, and let's start with this factoid. It's true that all nations that beat us on most exams have international standards. But then so do almost all the nations that do worse than we do on international exams. So there's really no correlation between having national standards and doing better. And you can look at TIMS or PISA or other tests and see this. I won't get into the details because I said only everybody only gets 10 minutes, so I don't want to take over my time. Um, and so there's that factoid. And that's really just the low-hanging fruit of, of looking at the empirical evidence such as it is on national standards. Then the question is, what does good research show, the kind that has control groups, those that compares treatment and control groups, those with national standards against those nations that don't have them? Well, what's that say? Well, first of all, there isn't very much of that research out there at all. Now, I find it then ironic that many national standards supporters who very much lauded No Child Left Behind for its mantra that whatever school districts adopt has to be scientifically based don't seem to think that's important when it comes to national standards, that there really is very little research base at all on a reform that will require all states and all schools to do exactly the same thing. There is, though, some research, but what there is almost exclusively focuses not just on the effect of national standards, but national standards coupled with high stakes for students. So whether or not a student does well in a test of the high standards will determine whether or not they advance another year or graduate. Well, that's not something contemplated, at least not very loudly, under the Common Core State Standards Initiative. And that's very important. So we have very little research, and what there is looks at this specifically. Finally, well, what does the research we do have find? Well, some studies find some modest positive effect for having national standards, but those are almost exclusively by one man, John Bishop, who's an, uh, an economist at Cornell. And he admits that these findings are dubious, because of the omitted variable possibility that there is something driving both standardization and success that we're missing, that is really the thing that, that causes these countries to do better. And one very powerful potential uh, unmeasured variable is culture, and he talks about culture. In particular, East Asian nations do very well on exams, and there are other regions of the world that do very poorly on exams. 
and then in addition to the omitted variable problem, there's actually a very small number of countries to choose from. So first of all, most tests or comparisons only have about 50 or fewer nations. And then the number of those nations without national standards is very small. So if you have one anomalous nation, that can throw off the whole findings. And in 2004, German researchers by the name of Jurgis and Schneider analyzed these outcomes controlling for outliers and found that if you just got rid of one country, the Philippines, there would be no positive finding whatsoever for national standards. So why would national standards not lead to great educational improvement? Well, the first thing is political reality, and Lindsay's going to handle this, so I, I'm not going to go into great detail on it. And Heritage's new paper deals with it, which you can uh, get outside. Uh, I will just say that democratically controlled government systems naturally tend to work for the people employed by those systems, teachers unions, administrators associations, and therefore do what's best for those people. And like all of us, what's best for them is to get as much money as they can without any outside accountability. And then I also wanted to, while we're at this, talk about what I think is sort of an irresponsible, almost semantic lie, that the national standards adoption will be voluntary. Washington, as I said, is already attaching federal money to signing on to the Common Core State Standards Initiative. And the NCLB reauthorization blueprint that the president put out suggests that a lot more money will be attached to adopting national standards if he gets his reauthorization. And of course, this is the only way to enforce national standards. So the CCSSI says that any state that signs on these standards must make them 85% of their English language arts and math standards. Well, suppose the state says, we're not going to do that. We'll only do 80%. What is the mechanism to hold them to that? It can only be the federal funding, at least the only mechanism that would have teeth. Then I would say that we very well might not want to become focused on standards and tests as we have been, the direction we've been moving in, even if we can change our own free kind of entrepreneurial culture where we accept test-centric education. The highest performers on these international ex examinations actually tend to do poorly relative to the United States in measures of happiness, which admittedly is a squishy thing to try and measure, <laughs> but also economic growth. And if we believe that education's two biggest goals are personal fulfillment and driving economic growth, then we should be very concerned that the national standardizers aren't apparently getting out of education what they want. So, Without national standards, how could we improve education? We do the opposite of centralization, and we also do something that is well-supported empirically. We give control of education funding to parents. We give schools autonomy, and essentially we have widespread school choice. Then you'd see schools have to compete, which leads to real innovation because you have to do things better and differently to compete for other students for money to stay in business. You see innovation, you see specialization, where schools can now focus on subsets of kids that have specific needs, desires, and talents. You can get a much more efficient system when you do that. And most importantly, you get real accountability. Educators won't be able to dodge accountability by just saying, well, if my customers aren't happy, I'm going to just go to the State House or to Washington, D.C. and say, too bad. We're going to make sure that you keep having to send your tax money to us and going to these schools. If you have school choice, they have to respond to the consumers or they lose business. And they even go out of business and have to find a new line of work. In other words, if you have school choice, you get the best of both worlds. Accountability with real teeth 
coupled with the ability to get all unique students the education that is best for them based on their unique needs, desires, and abilities. Thank you. Thank you, Neil, and thanks for inviting me um, here today. Um, uh, where to begin? So, so, many, so many things. So while Mike, in an email exchange, took on whether this debate today should be called National Curriculum Standards, I was smart enough not to actually, in email, say what I wanted to say, which is this is actually not a debate about national standards, because if you start talking about national standards, I feel like I'm having a 1990s flashback where national means federal, and that's really not what we're talking about. So I know we're probably going to get to um, all thousand of Neil's points, but let me just hit on some things that I think are really important baseline things for people to understand. I mean, first of all, standards are not curriculum. They are not the same thing, and that's an important distinction to make. Secondly... I know there's all this talk about the federal government and the federal government's influence and the federal this being some Obama administration plan, but that is simply not the case. So let me just give you a little bit of history about what Achieve's been doing and, and sort of demonstrate that for you. So Achieve started working with states in 1996 um, to improve their standards and assessments, and we did that state by state. We were brought in by governors and chief state school officers and, and other policymakers to, to help them with their standards. In 2001... After having worked for half a dozen years with, with states, we, we realized that, that we really needed to think hard about what it was that kids needed to know when they graduated from high school to be successful. So we, we did a large research project, actually, with Fordham and a couple of other uh, partners um, called the American Diploma Project to actually, for the first time ever, this might surprise you, in the past, standards were set by lots of content experts who got in a room together and decided what it was they thought kids needed to know. It's kind of uh, not not really the way to necessarily set your end of high school bar correctly. So in that project, we actually asked employers and college professors who were teaching first-year courses, what is it you expect kids to know and be able to do when they enter your courses? And we found some things that were pr quite extraordinary, and that was that most states and districts had set their bar far too low for high school graduates in terms of what they needed to know and be able to do in mathematics and English to be successful. And so then we started working with states to raise that bar. And by the way, if you ever wonder if you see that statistic, and sometimes it's shocking, it's about 30% across the country, kids going into colleges needing remediation. That's why. There was a difference in expectations between what kids need to actually get that diploma and what employers and colleges expect of them. So states began to work together in 2005 in the American Diploma Project uh, to raise their standards, raise their graduation requirements, to really systemically look at what it would take to improve high school performance, including their standards. So it, as states were working together beginning in 2005, we started to notice something kind of interesting. And in 2008, put out a report, uh, not very far from here, that showed that 16 states that had actually adopted college and career-ready graduation uh, standards, end of high school standards, had not only raised the bar, right, they hadn't lowered the bar together, they had raised the bar quite significantly together because of what they were hearing in their own states while they did this work from employers and from their higher ed community about what kids needed to be successful. So they raised the bar, and another interesting thing happened. We started to see increased commonality because, well, I actually do think 2 plus 2 equals 4 in every state, 
it's also the case that employers employ people across states. The expectations of colleges are not terribly different from state to state. They're not even very different from two- and four-year institutions. And so we started to see, of the 16 early adopter states, that they were really increasingly having common English and mathematics standards. And that was really interesting to us. So that moved the states to say, well, wait a minute. We can actually take it one step further. And so why don't we get together as a larger group, which the states began to do last uh, April in the Common Core State Standards Initiative. Um, Again, the work of Common had begun long before the administration came into place, and actually the work of the current initiative that put out the final standards today happened long before anybody had ever heard of Race to the Top or any discussion had happened about uh, ESEA reauthorization. And I think it's also fair to say that this work that began in the states began with governors and teachers and schools and local and state folks, it's very important to those same states, those same states that with Governor Purdue today issued the final mathematics and English standards, it's very important to them that it continue to be voluntary, that it continue to be state-led, and that the federal government continue to stay out of it. And they're committed to that. Um, I want to say, even though I guess we're not going to get into content which I guess I'm actually really happy about since the final standards um, were sent out last night at about midnight, that actually the the final common standards are quite good and superior to anything that states currently have. Um, They have undergone extensive revision, lots of state people. You can see who was on the writing team. You can see who were on the validation teams. The standards are quite good, and I'm happy to take questions about sort of what the hallmarks are of those standards, but but they do represent a significant improvement to the status quo uh, for most states. And finally, I just want to tackle the question about whether standards are really going to improve outcomes. And on this point, I think maybe Neil and I don't disagree very much. Um, Standards are important because they set the bar that the whole system is going to be geared towards. Um, And they do that in a way that allows teachers and districts and schools lots of flexibility in how, how to get from here to there. But they are not nearly enough. Mike can tell you there are plenty of examples of states with really, really excellent standards, very pretty standards that sit on a shelf and that never made their way into classrooms. So standards alone don't do it. You really need to have that be the beginning of a system of change, which includes looking at your graduation requirements, looking at the courses, looking at professional development, looking at your instructional tools, looking at uh, your curriculum, looking at your assessments, and your accountability systems. And it's only when all of those things really are working together that you can effectuate uh, systemic change and where standards are the beginning and certainly um, not the end. And that's frankly why the governors and the chief state school officers and other policy leaders in states came together to work on this initiative, had come together before to work together because they realized as a matter of, of economic development, as a matter of their states being able to compete in a, uh, in a world economy, that they were going to need to do a better job across the board with respect to education, and that they could go farther together than they could go alone. And that in some things, like standards, the idea of having 50 sets of standards in a highly mobile, uh, 
uh, highly interconnected society no longer made any sense. And so that's what, this, that's what the governors and the chiefs and, and other policymakers have done in the standards that were released today. And it's what they hope to do as they move forward and are already thinking about issues like what would an assessment system look like that might, meet, might match those standards? What could we do together in terms of creating common tools? To me, I mean, that's actually the market at work. That's governors deciding how to actually get together and, and solve a problem and spend the money once and not 50 times over. So with that, let me turn it over to Lindsay. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me, Neil and Cato. This is, it's great to be here to debate this. I don't think anyone would disagree that American education needs to be fixed. Um, as Sandy mentioned, just a, about a third of all high school students need remediation when they enter college. Um, a third of fourth graders and a third of eighth graders nationally are not proficient in reading. And we know that for about the past 40 years, graduation rates have stagnated around 70%. And these very dismal statistics have persisted despite ever-increasing, an ever-increasing role for the federal government over the past few decades and have persisted despite increases in spending. A child entering kindergarten today can expect to have at least $120,000 spent on his or her education by the time they graduate. Tremendous increases in spending. But national standards really represent the latest attempt to further entrench the federal government in what is the role of states to direct their own educational autonomy. And Sandy's really right to say that she's having a 1990s flashback because it really is what this should elicit. These national standards are a veiled attempt by the Obama administration to do what the Clinton administration did out in the open in the 1990s. In 1995, the history standards, of which I have a copy, were so roundly rejected that the Senate rejected them 98 to 1. Senator Kennedy rejected them. The Congressional Black Caucus rejected these standards. Why? Why were they so roundly rejected? Because they had things like this. The standards failed to cover the, that the U.S. landed a man on the moon, but covered the shuttle disaster. And that was really emblematic of the bias throughout these history standards. But the Obama administration has, um, has learned from their mistakes, the mistakes that were made in the 90s, and have steered clear of history standards, electing instead to work on English language arts and math, at least for the time being. But this latest attempt to impose national standards on states through Race to the Top, potentially through Title I, and as ESEA reauthorization comes up for question, is not new. And it will not improve learning because national standards will fail to address a fundamental misalignment between the power and incentive structure that exists in American education. The problem facing education in the United States today these problems are deep, and they're rooted within that misalignment between the power and incentives that are created by teachers' unions and federal funding incentives. The mission of teachers' unions, of course, is to protect their job security, their salaries, and the benefits of their millions of members. Federal funding incentives, on the other hand, have let national policymakers set school agendas for schools. These goals do not consistently or often align with the needs of students. 
but as the system is currently structured, parents have neither the ability to withhold funding nor collective bargaining power. Yet, parents have the most at stake in their child's educational well-being. National standards and testing do nothing to fix this misalignment and would detract further from the real reforms that would realign those incentives and power structures to put public education more in line with the needs of parents and students. And national standards will really further exacerbate this misalignment because parents will be forced to relinquish one of their more powerful tools for educational improvement, which is control of the academic content, standards, and testing through their state and local policymakers. But proponents of national standards contend that national standards are necessary so that parents can understand how their children's academic performance compares to those of students across the country. But rather than making public schools more accountable to families, national standards are likely to make schools more responsive to the centralized scorekeeper, i.e. the federal government, providing information that is more useful to bureaucrats who distribute funding than it is to parents who are seeking to direct their children's education. But it doesn't have to be this way. We have really great examples in the states of how to increase accountability to parents, increase transparency, and ultimately increase academic achievement. Florida is a fantastic example of this. Under the leadership of Governor Jeb Bush, beginning in 1998, Florida transitioned to a very transparent system of grading their schools and school districts. And they had graded their schools all along, but it was on a rather opaque one through five grading system. So in 98, they transitioned to an A through F scale. Seems very common sense. But that really equipped parents with a good idea of how well their children were doing in school. Parents knew if their child was in a school that was ranked as an A, that this was better than having a child in a school that was ranked an F. They didn't have that concept before. Was it better to have a child in a one school or a five school? So transitioning that grading system really increased transparency and it increased accountability from schools to parents. And it increased accountability because, as Neil mentioned earlier, parents had some sort of recourse, some sort of exit pass out of failing public schools. Uh, Florida implemented school choice, which was ultimately um, knocked down in 2006, but they've been able to retain school choice for special needs students there. Uh, they also implemented alternative teacher certification. They ended social promotion. They have one of the largest and most robust virtual schools in the country. So this whole suite of just sweeping education reforms, uh, not federal directives or national standards, has led Florida to increase academic achievement significantly. And it's really amazing. Um, African-American students in Florida now outpace or tie the statewide average of all students in eight states. Hispanic students in Florida now outpace or tie the statewide average of all students in 32 states. So we're seeing really tremendous gains that, again, weren't the result of um, top-down federal directives. But despite these good state examples, proponents still want a top-down solution. Fans of national standards contend that they are necessary because state standards vary in quality. And Secretary Duncan has referred to state standards as 50 different goalposts. And it is true that some states have high-quality standards, while others are lacking. But the same pressures that detract from the quality of many state standards are likely to plague national standards as well. As a result, the rigor and content of national standards will tend to align with the mean among states, undercutting states with higher-quality standards, such as Massachusetts, Virginia, California. Forcing those states to abandon their higher standards and conform to less rigorous national standards seems to prioritize standardization over the pursuit of excellence. 
national standards, as the phrase implies, will be imposed on everyone, ending the idea of states as laboratories of reform in favor of homogenous mediocrity, or as referred to earlier, increased commonality. This also means that parents will no longer be able to petition their local school, school boards or states for changes to standards, but will instead have to trek to Washington to find out if bureaucrats in D.C. agree with their concerns. Without going through the halls of Congress or even contemplating the heavy lift of No Child Left Behind reauthorization, the Obama administration has already advanced one of the most consequential education policy transformations in decades, which has some people quite nervous. The executive secretary for the Montana Board of Education wonders where the federal government will draw the line. First it's standards, then curriculum, then textbooks, he said. The Texas Commissioner of Education called the national standards push a federal takeover of the nation's public schools. For decades, federal involvement in education has been growing with no measurable positive benefit for children. Clearly, the problems created by centralization will not be solved by further centralization. The push for national standards and tests detracts from a more fundamental debate about the real problems in American education. These deeper problems are rooted in a misalignment of power and incentives that favor teachers' unions over students and empowers distant policymakers, which competes with student learning objectives. It's not national standards that will improve education. Instead, it is policies that will provide states with increased flexibility and freedom from federal red tape so that their focus is aligned not with a federal funding incentive or the demands of teachers' unions, but with direct accountability to students and parents. Thank you. Thank you, Adam and Neil, for having me here. Thanks, everybody. Uh, you know, Neil and I have done this debate several times now. We've got it honed pretty well, and it's always fun. Um, the last time that I was here at Cato was for the release of his book. And I remember at the time, we certainly talked about the idea of national standards, and it was just an idea. And I said something like, you know, maybe I, I was hopeful that in our lifetime, we might move to national standards. Right? And here we are, just a few years later. Uh, and we've got a real-life proposal on the table as of 10 a.m. this morning. Uh, standards that, as Sandy said, are quite good. We're going to be doing a final official review from Fordham uh, in coming weeks. Uh, but so far, so good in terms of what we see. Uh, and so I would be tempted to come here and do a little bit of a victory lap. Right? Uh, in fact, I even thought that maybe I should put up a big banner saying, Mission Accomplished. I could walk around in a flight suit and put my thumbs up. Right? And that would be fitting. Uh, because even for those of us who support national standards, we have to see that today's event is an important milestone, releasing these standards, the standards that are very good, uh, but the mission is not accomplished. Uh, there's still a lot of ways that this national standards effort could go off the rails, uh, and that uh, and even if everything goes right, that the, the standards stay rigorous, assessments linked to those standards are very good, uh, the cut scores are set high, uh, states do a good job implementing them. Uh, even then, as Sandy said, we have to be careful, those of us who advocate for this policy change, that this is not going to, we're not, gonna, we're not saying this is going to fix everything in American education. Uh, there is no one thing that's going to fix everything in American education, though I do believe, and I think the evidence shows, that there's a good chance that this is going to help us make more progress and make more progress faster than we would if we kept on our current path, which is 50 state standards. So uh, what I want to do today is to talk about really four arguments 
uh, that Neil and Lindsay made. Uh, first, that there's no evidence base for national standards. Second, that we have to choose between standards on the one hand and choice on the other hand. Third, that it's likely that these common standards will become just as dumbed down as many of the state standards we have today. And then finally, that uh, these common standards will inevitably lead to greater centralization and federal control in education. All right, so I want to start by reading you something. It's from a LA Times story back from April. Uh, this was a story about uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger coming out in support of tenure reform. And of course, there was pushback from the teachers' unions, as you'd expect. And let me read you this quote. Quote, there is no research showing that changes in seniority and tenure have any effect on student achievement, uh, A.J. Duffy said in a statement, A.J. Duffy being the teacher union president in L.A. Now, when reformers like us see a statement like that in the newspaper, we all roll our eyes, right? We say, okay, here it is. Here's the teacher union that has kept us from ever trying tenure reform or getting rid of all the seniority protections, uh, and yet... He makes the case that, you know, therefore, because we never tried it, there's no evidence that it will work, right? And our reply would be, well, we've got actually a long time of experience with seniority protections and tenure protections, and the results don't look so good. And my point is this. Of course, we don't have evidence that national standards in the United States are going to lead to higher student achievement. We've never tried it. Uh, but when you listen to Neil's arguments especially, and also most of Lindsay's, they are mostly not arguments against national standards. They're really against standards. I mean, Neil said it very bluntly just a few minutes ago. He said uh, that uh, all kids are different and we should tailor education and that he's not, you know, it's not just one standard he's against. He's against 50 standards, too. He really believes that the private sector should set the standards. Uh, you know, he questioned whether or not test scores even matter, that the countries that have higher test scores than us have people who are not as happy as we are. So maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, that democratically controlled public education systems uh, always do what's best for the adults and therefore standards can never work. Um, and Lindsay, uh, making this argument that the push for standard will distract from the real problem, this misalignment of power and incentives. Okay, all of those arguments, again, they're not really about national standards. They're just about standards and accountability. Uh, so what's the evidence on standards and accountability, first of all? Uh, here, I think it's quite compelling. And, and Neil talks about this in his paper, which is great and does a nice job looking at the research. Hany Shek and Mackie Raymond found in early 2000s that the states that adopted high-stakes testing and accountability systems in the 90s saw bigger gains on NAEP than other states did. Uh, more recently, just a few weeks ago, we've got a paper in Education Next from Tom D. and Brian Jacobs. This is from the National Bureau of Economic Research. They follow this up and they say, okay, what about the states that adopted standards and testing and accountability because they were forced to under No Child Left Behind? Did they make greater gains in more recent years than the states that already had standards and accountability? And the answer is generally yes, particularly in mathematics. So we have pretty good evidence that if you adopt standards and testing and accountability, you get at least a bump in student achievement. Uh, and we also know that since the late 90s, when standards-based reform came into account, we have seen very strong gains on the NAEP, on the National Assessment, for low-income kids, African-American kids, Hispanic kids, low-achieving kids. A lot of that happened right in the uh, sort of late 90s into the 2000, and then have maintained someone under No Child Left Behind. So... Uh, even for those of us who have tons of problems with No Child Left Behind, we have to say that this general approach seems to be making some difference. Okay. Then you look specifically at states. Okay, we mentioned, Lindsay mentioned Massachusetts and Florida. You look at Massachusetts, right? Huge gains. Now at the top on reading and math, fourth grade and eighth grade, huge gains for minority kids, for poor kids over the last decade. Now, it's hard to make the case that Massachusetts got those results because of anything related to school choice. 
There's not much school choice in Massachusetts. There's a very good charter school sector, but it's quite small. I think anybody would look at Massachusetts and say it was mostly because they set very high, excellent standards. They had a very rigorous test. They held schools and kids accountable for, for results on that test, and that they saw tremendous gains. They did lots of other things well also. And then as Lindsay said, Florida, right? Choice was a key part of Governor Jeb Bush's strategy, but it wasn't the only part. Uh, and in fact, standards were a big part of driving uh, the changes there, transparency, accountability, standards for on tests. Okay? Jeb Bush, by the way, who is a supporter of the Common Core State Standards Initiative, who for years has been saying, hey, this is crazy that we have 50 different standards and we should figure out a way to do this collaboratively. All right, so there's a lot of good evidence that standards are a piece of the puzzle and that they do make a difference. Uh, and likewise, that, there's, that we don't have to have this false dichotomy between choice on one hand and accountability on others. In fact, there's a lot of people in the school reform world who are pushing for both. Charter schools that are publicly accountable but also have choice, right? Certainly pushing for vouchers. At the same time, we're pushing for merit pay and tenure reform and standards and all this comprehensive approach to reform that says, hey, we don't have to choose one thing over another. Uh, okay, let me uh, make a couple more points. Uh, a lot of concerns that the Common Core standards are going to be dumbed down over time. Look, this is a reasonable concern. For those of us at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, we mostly support this effort for common standards as a means to an end, the end being more rigorous standards. Right Now, we so far so good. We're pretty happy with the standards that came out today. Again, we'll know more. And this summer, we're going to come out with a very detailed review looking at state standards versus common standards. So we can know for sure whether or not Sandy's right, that in every case, these standards are better than what the states have now. We suspect in most cases, that's going to be a, a slam dunk, but there might be some close calls. But, uh, but what do we, you know, but this idea of sticking with what we have now is insanity because the, the, uh, the differences from state to state are enormous and they're having an impact in our classroom. Uh, we had a big study that found that where states set the bar on proficiency, that can raise, vary from the 6th percentile to the 77th percentile. So what that means is if you're in certain states, if your child scores at the 6th percentile nationally, which basically means they don't have some kind of learning disability, Okay, they're way below grade level, they're way below average, but they still are considered proficient. Okay, so Lindsay's talking about what we can do to give parents information. Parents in those states are being told, your kids are doing fine. All right, your kids are proficient, but they're not at grade level. They're certainly not on track to be ready for college, and we're not telling that. And yes, Arnie Duncan says we're lying uh, to parents by telling them that. And the incentives in the system right now are to get kids over that proficiency bar. Well, if the bar is set very low, then all the incentives are to aim instruction at the very bottom of the class, ignore the kids in the middle and at the top, which has huge problems for economic competitiveness and just for you know, kids going insane in these classrooms bored to death because the instruction is at such a low level. So we believe we'll be much better off with higher standards. Now, we have a good start today, but it could go wrong. How can we try to make sure these common standards remain high? We think the key question here is around governance. Who's going to control these standards 10, 20 years from now? So far, it's been an ad hoc thing with the governors and the state superintendents. That's not going to work down the long time. And so at Fordham, we are doing a year-long project with support from the Gates Foundation to look at this question of how can we structure the governance? Who needs to be overseeing them? Is it state legislators? Is it, is it governors? Is it chiefs? How can that work? How can it be funded so that this thing works in the long term? Final point. Uh, there's been a lot of talk today from this side of the panel <laughs> that inevitably common standards will lead to greater federal control and centralization. Adam said offhand, clearly there's a new move to centralization. Neil said, uh, this is going to require all states and all students to do the same thing. Uh, 
Lindsay said, this is going to be imposed on everyone, right? And yet, for all the coercion that there's been, admittedly, under race to the top, coercion that I think was a really bad idea for particularly this reason, uh, states are still free to say no. And you look at Texas, right, where Texas has said, hey, we're not playing. We're not doing it. We think our standards are better. We think that's fine. Let's see how kids in Texas do over the next few years compared to the Common Core kids. They may decide down the road to join. They may not. That's okay. We keep hearing about how the administration wants to link federal funding with these common standards. That's actually not true. Now, you could believe it because the administration did a horrible job communicating this idea when it came out with it. When you look at the fine print, the administration says, in order to get Title I funding, you've got to have standards that are pegged at a college and career-ready level. And that could be either these common standards or your higher ed institutions in your state can tell us that there's that level. What the administration was trying to do is say, look, we don't want to have this race to the bottom anymore with low state standards. But all of us saw that and said, oh, my God, are they trying to say that you've got to do these common standards to get money? It's a horrible idea. And I wish they'd never said it. Okay? And, and policymakers and Republicans are right to draw a line in the sand that says common standards okay if they're truly state-led, led by governors. Federal standards, not okay. And I think that's what we've got to say, and that we can draw that distinction. And in fact, these standards provide an opportunity to back off the federal rule. And to their credit, the administration in their blueprint for ESEA said, look, if we can get to the point where there's common standards, then we need to back away and have less micromanagement from Washington about how schools and states meet those standards. That's the right approach. That's something uh, that, that puts the different uh, levels of government back in the roles for which they're best designed. Uh, Again, there's plenty of reasons to be concerned, and I'm glad that Neil and Lindsay have raised these concerns. It's important that we get this right, and we won't get it right automatically or inevitably. Uh, we've got to get all the little decisions and processes right. Uh, but it's also an amazing opportunity we have right now to make much more progress than we would otherwise, to have much higher standards than we would otherwise, and to have information for parents that could be incredibly helpful were we to move, and I hope that we do, to a system of much greater parental choice in education. Thanks. Uh, thank you all, and uh, I, think, I think we'll have a lively discussion here, some uh, major points of disagreement. And I'd like to kick off the, 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 the question section uh, uh, of this program with a question of my own. Afterwards, we'll go around the audience with a microphone, and if you could please uh, state your name, uh, affiliation, and uh, keep to a question uh, rather than a statement. That would be wonderful. Um, the question I have, which seems to be one of the, one of the most contentious, and I think one of the most important, is is the evidence issue. And I would love, obviously, Neil and and, and Mike uh, focus most on this, but um, uh, would love all your input on that and and just hash out uh, a bit of where you're both coming from uh, in terms of what the evidence actually shows and how much and how solid it is. Um, and and I guess Neil uh, in in response, and then throw it up into the rest again. Okay, well, I'll try not to take even more time with this response than I did with my initial talk. Um, because I feel a little bit like Ronald Reagan when he was debating Jimmy Carter, and I have to say, there you go again. Um, because, uh, Mike, you and I, but also uh, your boss, uh, Checker Finn, and I have been over some of these things before. And I guess I haven't gotten through. Um, the first thing is, uh, I would first say... One of the reasons I bring up the evidence issue is, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I've looked through all the Fordham publications advocating for national standards and saw nothing or very little about the empirical evidence. And that, that concerned me. 
for no other reason than you guys are, are probably the leading proponents of this. And if we're going to make a huge decision about national standards, I would hope that all the research that was out there would be tackled. I also want to talk about, I don't know how many times I've been told I'm against standards, as if standards can only come through the government, in particular the federal government. And so I ran this list off for, for Checker one time, but it's worth you know, refreshing everybody's minds. Um, first of all, we have had actually education standards, standards that help us standardize the, the language we speak. If you go back to the 1810s, 20s, 30s, there was something called Webster's, they had readers, dictionaries, sold millions of copies, and his intent was to standardize the American form of English. Very successful. And it wasn't because uh, the government in Washington being you know, set up said, by the way, everybody will read Webster's and will speak American English. Um, but we can go, of course, far beyond education to see how standards can be set without government compulsion. Although I should also mention we have AP tests, Terranova tests, Stanford 9 tests, all sorts of things in, in education. But, you know, how many people when you're buying a car, you say, well, how do I know it's a good car? Well, you know, I go to the Department of Transportation's website and look up what they say I should drive. No, you go to Car and Driver, Consumer Reports, things like that. We, they set standards. Um, and then you can look at Again, look at education. Look at how we select colleges. Now, there are problems in higher education. But we have lots of free market standard setters, U.S. News, Princeton Review, uh, Intercollegiate Studies Institutes. All these people will assess the educational product you get in colleges and universities. Then just a little bit about the research. First of all, the standards and accountability research that's really good, yes, it hasn't been done in this country, but we have international comparisons. Why haven't we talked about that research? We're countries doing what we want to do. Then you talk about Hanushek and Mackey. Yes, they do find that states that had tough accountability tended to do better, but this was in a very short timeline, so there's a sustainability question. We know that politics is often driven by things people already want, which means, well, would people have gotten better education regardless of what the state did, even in spite of the state, if they'd just been allowed to choose a school because they wanted those high standards? Then there's no control for culture. The Jacob and D paper on, on No Child Left Behind was nice, but there were no SES controls, nothing about whether culture drive changes, and whether or not NCB caused the states that were early adopters to ratchet down improvement. Uh, you talk about Massachusetts, which does have, you know, does have good growth in math, uh, but you ask whether it's sustainable. For one thing, Massachusetts, you look at the reading scores, they're still pretty much flat. And uh, there's also been a, often been a tendency to say, look, Massachusetts, California, and Indiana have high standards. Well, if they can do it, why can't the nation do it? Well, the flip side is 47 states have crummy standards. So why should we think the odds are in our favor for good national standards? Um, and finally, I'd say before I monopolize the whole rest of this forum, um, choice ultimately is not compatible with the government telling you what you will read, I mean, what you will learn in English and math and other subjects. And the fact of the matter is it's the standards that drive the curriculum, which is entirely the intent of standards, or why have them at all if you don't want those to be the things that kids are supposed to be learning? Uh, I yield my time now. <laughs> well, you know, 
Neil and I are not going to come to agreement on this larger standards question. I mean, so I, I, I'll be clear, though, Neil. Yes, you're not against standards, but you are against states setting standards and holding schools accountable for them. And this gets to this larger philosophical question. If education is not just a private good but also a public good, do all the taxpayers that are supporting this public education system have a right to have some voice in what kids are learning? You know, you look at those common core state standards that came out today. If you look at the English standards, uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised to find they're actually, or, or some of you may not be pleasantly surprised, uh, that they're actually about much more than English. Uh, they lean heavily on the research by Don Hirsch, E.D. Hirsch of the Core Knowledge Foundation, that says that if kids are going to learn how to read, what they need to learn is content. They need to learn from a pretty early age history and science and be challenged with uh, real works of nonfiction as well as literature and on and on. So, for example, you'll find there's an expectation that our students read the founding documents uh, and make, are able to make sense of them. Now, I'm happy that that's in there. And if I'm going to pay for a public education system, I want to make sure that Susie Smith at some point is asked to learn about our founding documents, uh, whether or not Susie Smith's parents want her to or not. Now, call me paternalistic, but I think that's a reasonable compromise to make. If Susie Smith's parents don't want her to read, uh, learn about the Constitution, they're you know, free to use a private education in a school that doesn't do that. All right, so that said, um, you know, this question about in, in, you know, if we just have choice and we don't have government standards, won't there be ways to judge schools? Well, I think it's going to be hard. I mean, look at what happens now. If you're a parent and you want to know how you're uh, you know, how to make a decision on a school, you'll probably go to greatschools.net and you'll find lots of great information. Uh, some of that is parent reviews of schools, and that's very helpful. Some of it is test scores. Well, where are those test scores coming from? Well, they're the state tests tied to standards. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I think in an enterprise like public education, where we're talking about 50 million kids in 100,000 different schools, uh, you know, it's helpful to have some of that basic information on how schools are performing against a common standard. And that doesn't take away from all kinds of ways to innovate and have other parent reviews and other ways to judge school quality. Finally, let's remember, you know, just because there's standards-based reform doesn't mean that schools have to do everything the standards say. I know many schools, particularly those that, that serve uh, affluent kids, the Scarsdales of the world, that say, look, we might get test scores that are somewhat lower than we could if we obsessed about this test. But we really believe in this different approach to learning. So our kids are going to do okay on the test. They may not do as great as the town next door, but parents, you know, here's why. And they're free to do that. And, and again, in the marketplace, parents can choose to live in a place that says, look, we are just not going to uh, obsess about these standards as much as another school might. Let me just pick up on that point. I think it's really important, again, especially after hearing Lindsay and Neil really uh, tell you again who it is that sat and wrote these standards. These, uh, this wasn't the federal government, wasn't people from the Department of Education, happened, started happening long before the Obama administration came on. It's people from states and localities. It's teachers, it's professors, it's content area experts. You can see who they are. It's all up on the website. It's not a surprise. But they're real people out in the real world. So it's important to know that that's actually where the work came from. Um, and, and on the evidence point, Mike, Mike picked up on this. But, I, again, I encourage you to look at the appendices to the, uh, to the standards that are published today. They really do. Nobody wanted 48 states and, and uh, territories did not sign up to create standards that were lower than the best state standards out there. It's, it's not, why would they do that? It's not what they set out to do. But what they did do is they learned from the best. They took the best state 
information they could find about standards, the best evidence, international evidence, NAEP, other well-regarded uh, benchmarks, and they used those to inform them about what the evidence showed, about what kids should learn in each grade and to be ready by, uh, by the end of high school for um, college and careers in, in a way that keeps all of their options open. Really important point. And, and I, I don't think we can uh, sort of discount that piece of evidence too much um, because for too long standards were set in a way that wasn't evidence-based, and I think we have made an important step forward. And again, to Mike's point, whether states choose to adopt these or not adopt these, it's really truly going to be up to the states, and the states will continue to fight and make sure that that voluntariness is an option that they retain. It's why they came together to work on these standards, and, and, I, and it's important to them that they continue to be voluntary. So, um, Sandy's saying that states signed on to standards that they considered to be the best, but I am a little skeptical just because today was the day that the final draft of these standards were released. Granted, there have been provisional drafts released, but the final standards were released today. States had to sign on months and months ago to these standards. So while theoretically maybe they thought they were signing on to good standards, I don't think they could know for sure until this morning what those standards were. Being Actually, contracted. Lindsay, what they signed on to was a process to create the standards. Nobody signed on to adopting the standards at the end. And frankly, it's why you've seen states like Virginia this week say, we're not going to go there. Okay, fine. That was actually part of what you signed on to. They were involved in the whole process. They decided not to adopt. Perfectly fine. Absolutely their choice. States need to decide whether this is better for them than the status quo. So, and, uh, But on the voluntary side of that, while it's one t- thing to say that states are voluntarily signing on, it's another thing entirely when you look at what the administration is doing. It is one thing for Governor Perry to say, that's okay. I don't want the few hundreds of millions of dollars at stake through Race to the Top. It's not worth the federal red tape. It will be another thing entirely for him, politically untenable, likely for him to turn down Title I money. And despite Mike saying it's not there, the administration didn't say at once that Title I money would be um, signed on, would be part of this adoption process. They've said it numerous times. That's Lindsay, 14. That's, billion. Lindsay, that's just not true. I mean, they, they've, they have repeated that they want common, they want college and career ready standards. They want states to promise that they have standards that are pegged to high level, but they've been, you know, they've backtracked after their dumb messaging at the beginning to say, we are not saying you have to sign on to these common standards. And if they did, it would be dead on arrival in Congress as it should be. Now, hold on a second, because we can say that's dumb messaging, but also people can put two and two together saying we have one effort for common standards that's getting all the attention and we're saying that all, we want all schools to be doing college and career-ready standards, which, by the way, the Common Core people say that's what they're shooting for. Right. Totally. There is money attached to it in Race to the Top, and the only out that you can say maybe that this isn't what they're going for, and clear, clearly that is the focus, is in the blueprint it said you could potentially, because the blueprint, of course, isn't legislation yet, have a state college or university certify your standards as college and career ready, which is the only out, if you work this through, that it seems states would have. Now, of course, all this has to be worked out. You know, I don't think ESEA is even going to be touched this year. But I don't think it's unreasonable for people to say it seems very clear that the Obama administration would like to connect national standards to Title I money and potentially other ESEA money. And, it, and I don't think we can just say it's bad messaging. Well, the way I see it, though, is that the administration was late to the party 
right? They globbed on to a voluntary state effort that was already well underway. And they did it maybe in a... uh, you know, in a way that, frankly, the states, you know, uh, it, it was not particularly helpful. Um, but that having been said, I think the states are committed to making sure that their efforts protected going forward. I'd, I'd like to redirect a little bit, and then we'll throw it up to the audience. Um, oh, you want to be the moderator here? I know. <laughs> I'm just sitting on sideline. I think you've I can't, control. I'm not going to get involved in a good fight. <laughs> I thought libertarians <laughs> believed in this sort of, you know. These are how issues chaos. are worked out. Uh, it, it, uh, we'll, we'll move on. I just wanted to, to raise one issue, which is regardless of the intent, um, is there any way to prevent the federal government from tying funds to these national standards once a majority of states adopt them? Or if a majority of states adopt them, remind everyone in this room probably doesn't need a reminding, but uh, th- that historically has been the route for federal control over things that they don't control, including <clears throat> uh, national standards on a drinking age, which don't make sense to have different standards in different states. And they tied highway funds in a very tenuous connection to drunk driving to that. Um, that was done in a conservative administration. So uh, w- once once uh, enough uh, states sign on, is there is there anything that you see in, uh, that that can be a, a bulwark against um, tying that money and using it uh, as a cudgel uh, uh, to keep them in uh, in the standards? Yeah, well, I think you know the bulwark is what it always is, which is politics. Uh, you know, I think for example, if if uh, Lindsay's organization said to Republicans on the Hill, look, you know, common is okay, state-led is okay, but the line in the sand is it shall not be federal. And that's where, by the way, most Republicans on the Hill who are paying attention to this issue right now are. They're kind of nervous, they're, you know, but watching, but saying, all right, we'll kind of hold our nose as long as this is truly state-led. Uh, but we are not going to, you know, get the feds involved in this. And I think that's, I mean, it, it's, I mean, surely I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised that there are some liberal Democrats that would love to you know, make mandates around this. And it's so it's the job of the policymaking process to push back and to have a clear line. The second thing is this governance issue, like I mentioned. I mean, who's going to run this thing long term? And that's got to be figured out. Uh, this ad hoc thing is not going to last forever. And, uh, and I think we want to do it in a way that is explicitly designed to try to keep the federal government at an arm's length. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a tough one, tough nut we got to crack. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope everyone's interested in this area. This all goes really fast relative to how much time I took up earlier. Uh, but I should say that I, I think you're right, Cindy, that the Obama administration sort of glommed onto this, but the CCSI is at the least guilty of saying right off the bat that they thought there should be federal money to support this effort. And once you ask for that federal money, it becomes hard for states to say, I'm going to let that money that came from state taxpayers go. Um, and I think it's also somewhat unrealistic to think the federal government would pay for it and then not try and have some say in it. Uh, and then I would say that, remember, race to the top, like I said, is what's driving people right now to sign on to the CCSSI. Um, and race to the top is a relatively small amount of money that states could get, but there's no guarantee they'll get it. And despite that really tenuous connection to, or uh, the difficulty of saying a state will get that money, one of the states that, that finally said they won't apply is, is Virginia. And Bob McDonald has been tap dancing ever since, saying, oh, he, by the way, you know, I really think everything you're doing is great. I just think our standards are better. And that's for a tiny amount of money. What do we think every state will end up doing when there's a lot of money attached to it? They can't keep saying, well, we might not have won a small amount of money. And we look in Utah under No Child Left Behind, which kept trying and trying to say, we're going to run our own state. They could never do it 
fully because they couldn't turn down the federal money. Okay, uh, and you guys feel free to tack it on to the end of a, an answer to another question. <laughs> but um, the audience, uh, right down here, please. From the Congressional Budget Office, and I just had a, uh, a question. Milton Friedman used to argue that you know you'd have reform movements that came through in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and the reformers were all gung ho. And you could even argue that you know what they were doing was a, was a very good thing. And then when the reform movement is done and you have an institution in place, the people who run it are the people who are actually being regulated, not the concerned citizens who are interested. So you know, the governance issue you bring up is is an important issue and you know, my, my worry is the, the more you move to a national standard is how do you keep the people who have screwed up the education system today from screwing it up once you have one standard they have to deal with instead of 50 or, as Neil would rather have, you know, an infinite number of standards? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good question. And uh, here's what I would say. I mean, one, one question is why is it that so many states were able to set such low standards and sort of get away with it? Uh, I think one part of that answer is that uh, the state-by-state state media were not all that focused on this issue. But if we move to one national standard, or let's say a common standard that lots of states join, and let's say five years from now there's an effort to water that standard down, I have a lot of faith that the Washington Post editorial board and the New York Times editorial board and the Wall Street Journal editorial board will take note, uh, and that we have the capacity that sort of use that media at a national level to be a stronger watchdog than perhaps we have at a 50-state level uh, to keep that from happening. Um, I think that, you know, though it's about transparency, it's about governance, uh, but, you know, look, I mean, your, your question is, is absolutely right. I mean, we've got to worry about those issues, but I don't think they, again, they're not any different than at the state standards level either, right? Um, I mean, none of this is self-implementing. None of this is inevitable. I mean, we have to get it right. I think that's right. I think it's also really important that um, that that it not just end at standards. That that it be more than that, right? That that you look and see whether these whether it's these standards or your own state standards or or anything else. You know, are they actually making a difference in classrooms? And there are unfortunately so many examples of really pretty good standards that actually don't make their way into classrooms. And so this is this is an opportunity, and I think it's frankly why Mike wanted to take a victory lap. But it's, it's part of the excitement of this, that there is an opportunity here because there is a great deal of interest, not just at the state level, but at the grassroots level among, among parents, among other people that are really paying attention to say, those look like good standards. How do I... How would I know if I saw that in my class, in my kid's classroom? What does that look like? What kind of curriculum would match that? What would be a better test that would assess that? What's the right kind of accountability system for that? So I think people are paying attention in a way that's, that's, uh, that's really important, and it's going to be really important going forward. And that's true whether your standards come from your district, your state, or whether you sign on to common standards. I just wanted to clarify. So you do see the standards as a step towards uh, uh, common curriculum? I think states are going to have to decide how the standards get implemented. And there's certainly been discussion about how do we put together instructional tools that we can all use, that we can make available to people. Because in a lot of places, there may be standards developed. And then as a teacher, what you get is not much of anything. 
And that's frankly not very helpful in determining how you make those standards real in classrooms. So having curriculum frameworks and good instructional tools and knowing they're good and they match the standards and being able to actually uh, you know, be free to teach what you should be teaching in a given year, I think is really, um, you know, is something that practitioners are really looking for. And so I think you will see states, districts, groups, people working together to figure out how to come up with options that schools can use that will, in fact, reflect the standards. And there ought to be, I mean, I hope a thousand flowers will bloom. There ought to be a lot of them. This is not a single, I know where they're going. This is not a single curriculum. It's not a national curriculum. That's not what we're talking about. But we do teachers and we do parents and students a huge disservice to throw out a gigantic pile of standards or even a smaller pile of standards as these are and say, good luck, good luck to you, and not give them the tools they need to actually make them operational in a classroom. So... To me, I hear both Mike and Sandy continually conflating this idea of standards with the idea of transparency. And it sounds to me, and Mike, you brought this up as well, that um, parents in certain states are being told that their children are proficient when they're not being proficient. That is really a matter of transparency, and it does not merit a federal takeover and the implementation of national standards. It is providing parents with clear information about where their children are and ultimately with giving them an exit path out of failing public schools. This whole conversation is moot if parents don't have a right of exit. So how, but how would you create that transparency today? Just like Florida did. Florida, I'll go back to Florida. They're a great example of creating report cards. All states do report cards, but Florida has better report cards. They're really transparent with their information. They grade both schools and school districts. So they provide parents with that. And then at least for special needs kids at the time, they can, they can get out. Right. But that still assumes that in Florida, as elsewhere, that those standards are, are rigorous. And so even in Florida, where the cut scores aren't that rigorous and aren't that high, you could still be told that your kids are doing fine. You're in an A-rated school. You're making all this growth. But in reality, it didn't actually mean that your, your kids are on track for being ready for college. And of course, we could also hope that the market would create some sort of system of grading schools and school districts that you would have, just like we have at the university level, um, companies that, raid school, that uh, rank schools and rank districts as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, we haven't needed the state to tell us what car to drive, what supermarket to go to, uh, any number, what computer to buy. But we have these easy, truly transparent guides that are easy to go to, written for regular people to understand, if for no other reason than the people who produce the guides are also making money off it. I don't know how we can say we're going to get transparency, even off of uh, the, the CCSSI standards. I haven't seen the final ones, if for no other reason... I couldn't get them until after they were released. But I saw the previous ones, and the English language art stuff, to me, is not at all transparent. Um, it's not at all clear-cut. It leaves lots of subjective judgment about whether or not a child is really identified with the main point of a passages or something like that. But going to your question, I think that it, I mean, Mike, I think you agree because I've taken this from mainly your publications, that states have had their standards typically watered down or didn't get something good to begin with, in large part because there are political forces at the state level that are very powerful, often teachers' unions, but also administrator associations and other groups that don't want high standards. So it sounds like you're saying the bulwark against this at the federal level will be that the national media will pay enough attention if someone tries to water this down that everyone will know about it. 
I find that a little hard to believe. If for no other reason I work in education, I can't get the media to cover education when there are wars going on and economic problems and there's some sort of problem in the Gulf and all these other things. And so I don't know that we can rely on education to always have this brilliant media spotlight on it at the national level when it has to compete with so many other things. And then we know that much of what goes into policy isn't done in the legislation, it's done in the regulation. And I haven't read a lot of Washington Post articles that get into the, into the weeds about who's doing what and negotiated rulemaking and all sorts of things like that. So I'm dubious that we can count just on media uh, scrutiny to somehow make federal standards largely immune from special interests. They're not federal. They're not federal standards. Common. Really uh, <laughs> paid for common standards. <laughs> wait a minute. Uh, uh, wait a minute. With that, we have to clear up, and I let that go before. What do you mean federally paid for? Well, uh, okay, I shouldn't no, say No, seriously, federally. what do you mean federally paid well, for? Uh, if, if money not is a tied. Dime has not a, wait a minute. Not right. a dime has gone from the federal government into the development of the standards. The federal government has had nothing to do with the development of the standards. I think that he is in mind today. federal dollars being tied to whatever no, no, is but that's, not, that's well, uh, not what he said, and it's an important no, I'm, I'm, distinction, I'm happy right? I'm to deal with that. Because the impetus for states to sign on to this, and the only stick or carrot that I, well, okay, stick that I can think of is the federal money. And I am looking not far down the road to say, if that's the case, then the federal government's money is what's causing states to sign on to this, and will then logically lead to the federal government beginning to say what goes into those standards, just as we can see the progression from the ESEA originally just being about compensatory federal funding for poor districts to No Child Left Behind, well, actually the Improving America Schools Act, then No Child Left Behind saying states, you must have standards and tests, math, reading, and science, and now an effort to identify exactly what standards they have to have. So when 48 states last April signed up to work on Common Core state standards, there was no race to the top, there was no discussion of ESAA reauthorization, and I'm not... There was race to the top. There was not, no, there not, not at the time when they got together. And they've been working on it for years. So one thing I find that's interesting, in you know, you said dubious. You probably could have stopped at dubious. But one thing I think that's really interesting is that your suggestion that the federal government, if something is successful, God forbid this be successful, then the federal government might be involved. Then the states should never get together to work on anything well, I didn't in a way that's, con- I mean, so if, if, if this might actually be a good idea and be successful because there is the outside possibility, which I'm sure you guys could fight against and be successful at, that the federal government would somehow take over, well, that, that I, the state should never get together and I, actually be I, successful? I want to open up a question. I'll just add one thing. <laughs> I am happy for the states to do this, but without any federal money involved. But the CCSI asked for federal support from the get-go. They didn't say... Make Explain money. What you mean by that. They said that you can you look. That. You can look on their old website if it's still up there. I know they just changed the website, but it said very clearly the federal role should not be to write the standards, but it should be to offer funds to support the efforts to create these common standards. And if you and you can go back to several reports that preceded this, the tough standards, tough whatever I can't remember them all, that consistently said the federal government's role is to fund parts of this. And if you take the funds, you ultimately have to take the control because, as Mike said, that's a public good. 
So if it's federal dollars, can't they argue for the public good? We have to make sure this is up to federal. I just have to say, I think you'd have a hard time finding that document. And I was part of those early discussions. And the there wasn't anybody in those in that room when a discussion about how to create the Common Core came up that didn't want the federal government to be not involved and at an arm's length. I seriously doubt that there was something that suggested that the Common Core State Standards Initiative would take federal money. That's we, we will absolutely have a blog fight. Uh, okay, about this awesome. afterwards, I'm and we'll cut and on the factual the issue. Charlie will be my guy. <laughs> I think. I think the main point is is just a different perspective on what leads to what, regardless of well, people's I mean, it's, uh, intentions. It's, it's a factual. I mean, no, 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 the factual part. I, I, I mean, about the general issue of tying federal con- uh, federal dollars to it. Uh, the, the the lady in purple, please. Um, I am here representing private schools today, and. Um, some of our children who are the needy children do receive Title I dollars as the money is to follow the child for services, not go to a private school, but to the child. So I have very strong concerns about the trickle-down effect about potential federal implementation of these or adoption of these, um, while I respect the fact that it has been a statewide, a state-led effort up to this point, and yet it, they're not even completed yet, and Obama's... the. Obama's administration's first two education documents have at the very least tiptoed around bringing these full force into his education policy. So my questions are two. One, do you really, really think that the Democrats or the liberals are not going to eventually bring these into uh, implementing every other aspect of their federal policy, even if it's not Obama 10 years, 15 years down the road? And two, where would y'all as supporters of the standards now like it to stop? Because, Ms. Boyd, I hear you say, oh, we need a curriculum attached to it. We need assessments attached to it, and we've got to do all this. Well, if we've got one set of standards, then we're going to have one set of curriculum and one set of tests and one set of textbooks to teach this curriculum. And at what point, where is it okay for y'all to draw the line in the sand since you support this effort now as as the state-led issue? Where would you like to see the line in the sand of the one for everybody? Well, I would just say, first of all, I don't think there should be a single curriculum or a single. I think there ought to be lots of choices. But having common standards across a number of states, however many decide to adopt them, right, actually creates an opportunity for states to get together and 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 have some additional options that, whether it's curriculum or instruction or assessments, but it'll give them the opportunity to create higher quality tools than they currently have access to and to know that they're actually aligned to the standards. I mean, I think what you want is to make sure that teachers actually have the tools that they need to teach, and you want to have a lot of options so that uh, it's so that teachers and schools have options as far as that goes. So it's not... Nobody said anything about a single curriculum. But you need to know that you've got a curriculum that matches your standards, which, which doesn't you know, always occur in districts or states wherever the standards are set. So it's important to, to actually have choices that you know follow the standards that are high. And I would say we are doing our children, especially uh, poor and disadvantaged children, a huge disservice by not setting across-the-board high standards. I mean, we know for a fact that there are lots of great schools out there who do really well by their, by their kids and a lot that don't. And frankly, having high expectations across the board changes things in a system. It means that you have to deliver an education to all of your kids that maybe currently only some are getting. And so to me, this is also a huge equity argument that I think is really important. We are doing, and, and we, you see it every day, that 30% of our kids graduate from high school, well, 
one, that not enough graduate from high school, and that 30% then need remediation once they get to higher education is, is you know, we're paying for things twice. It's, it should not be. And it, it's worse for kids that um, come from places that don't have a high-quality education. Uh, Mike, do, do you have a line in the sand or a, a break point or, or a point at which you would go full, fully against the, this kind yeah, of Yeah, I, I think, uh, first of all, it, it is really up to the states. I mean, if the states decide to do some things in common, some more things in common, that's up to them. And I think they'll find that for some states there's some efficiencies to be had by doing some of that. I think there's some great opportunities. I mean, you look right now at a lot of the different markets in education, the textbook market and the professional development market and the teacher training market, and those things don't work very well in part because it's all fragmented by 50 different states and standards. I think this could help that market work better. But I do want there to be a market. Uh, where there are private providers, you know, competing with one another to provide those services. I think, for example, some cool stuff could happen on online learning, where states could come together and maybe come up with some you know, virtual schools that cross state boundaries, so that you know the kids that are getting a crappy education in every you know corner of the country could have another option that could be high quality that they don't have today. So I just think it, it opens up lots of possibilities, um, but it should be all state-led and and uh, voluntary. I just say one thing on that. Um, I I think on the equity issue, I'm glad that was raised. The I think that this standards movement is really the antithesis of providing an equitable education to children. And in fact, if we look at the Obama administration's overall agenda, it is an agenda that is philosophically driven by standardization of learning. Um, when we hear the administration talk about equity, we we hear them talk the talk, but at the same time, they are phasing out school choice here in the district. And their blueprint, which I guess is up for debate on what's real and what's not in the blueprint now, the blueprint does talk about equitable distribution of funding for schools, equitable distribution of teachers and principals. I mean, that is, that's a scary thing. And that's how this administration views equity. And I, I think that goes hand in hand with the standardization of content and standards and curriculum and testing. And there is federal money for testing at least $350 million in Race to the Top. So... We have any uh, other questions in the audience? Uh, yes. Hi, it's um, Maria Merkowitz, and I'm not with anybody. Uh, for Ms. Boyd and Mr. Petrilli. Um, Petrilli. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd be very much in favor of a national standard, but what I'm hearing is that if states have the ability to opt out, how do you ultimately have a national standard? Um, will it be the weakest states that say, well, we don't want to participate so that their standards are low? Question one. Question two, how will you test people to see that the standards have been met? If you have a standardized test for all, say, 50 states, um, won't the teachers then wind up teaching just to the test. If you don't have a standardized test, does that mean then that each individual school can test any way they want and it may have no true meaning? Do my questions right. make any sense? Yeah, they do. So, yeah, I'll take the first one. You know, this concern that the weakest states are going to sign on. You know, I feel like we've had these, I mean, not sign on. The, the weakest states may sign on and the strongest states may not. Is that what you're saying? Um, 
I mean, we've had these debates for years now, Neil and I have, but now we have, it's no longer theoretical. We have a real-life set of standards, uh, and many of the leading, strongest states have been very involved. I mean, Massachusetts has been integrally involved, and I think they've been playing a very good role in pushing the initiative to keep the standard high and keep it high. We'll find out over the next couple of months which states actually adopt the standards, and I think you will see many on there that have very good standards. I think you'll see Florida adopting the states under the blessing of Jeb Bush, saying this is a good idea. Um, and my, what I suspect is you're going to see most states eventually sign on because this – I think most governors, especially – and it's important that the governors are in line – say, look, I want our state to have high standards, right? And I'm a competitive kind of person. I don't want to be singled out for having low standards. Uh, and this common thing solves my political problem, which is you know, it's hard to do at the state level because – uh, you know, the, the teacher unions and the angry suburban parents and everybody pressuring us, well, now I've got the cover of this common thing. I think you're going to find most states. I bet, you know, within six months we'll have 40 states signed up. Um, and those will be some that have weak standards today and some that have strong standards today. And on the whole, it'll mean that, you know, the vast majority of kids will be operating under a system with much higher standards than they have uh, in place in the classroom today. I would just say it's interesting. Some, from working with states, sometimes it's uh, the states that have the furthest to go where it's actually easiest to make the most dramatic change. Some t- because people in your state know, you know, we don't want to be 45 anymore in these national rankings. We, we need to do something. So actually, uh, I think sometimes it's harder for states who, are, who have well-known and kind of well-regarded standards and everybody thinks they're the best Sometimes it's harder for them to actually make changes. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. And I think what states are going to do now that they have – they've been working, of course, on the standards. But now that they have them in hand, they're going to have to do the hard work of looking at those standards against their own standards and figuring out whether it makes sense for them for them to move forward. And, um, you know, we'll see whether Mike is right. I think a bunch of them will move forward. I think some will wait and see, and some will look at the next time the regular standard cycle comes up, which is every five, seven years, and they may, they may wait until then, um, but, but we'll, have, you know, we'll have to see. I would just say that I, I think that that's a very a critical point, and this is why I think the federal government will be involved with money, is how do you get states to stay with these standards, and even if they say they adopted them, if they don't make them 85 percent of their curriculum, or if they start to, to degrade how important those standards are, who holds the stick to say, oh, get back in line? It's got to be the federal government, unless the states together are going to come up with a pool of money that they only let one, you know, states grab from if they participate. But once you have that federal money backing it, which you have to have, that leads to all the political uh, uh, incentives to be to dumb down the standards through federal regulation. And I, I would also say that I think that the, the idea that you get political cover through national standards, in other words, well, all the other states have signed on to this, so we should too, well, that can work both ways. What happened when other states start saying these are too hard and they drop out and someone else just says, yeah, I think these are too hard, or states say these are too hard, let's go to the federal government and write into the regulations to make them easier. But, so Neil, Neil, we, 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 provides any sort of we've had this debate for years now, and you've made the great point that it is possible that we're going to set standards and they're going to be mediocre standards. But the standards set today are very good standards. No, they're not written today, published today, not adopted by anybody. I know, but I'm telling you, they're very good standards. So does that change your mind at all? It says, hey, okay, the process so far has resulted in some pretty good standards. Absolutely not, because no one's adopted it. It has no teeth behind it. Actually, so I don't, if, I mean, based on your own argument, no one's been forced to take this at all. So you've, you've 
published them. I actually haven't seen the final thing vetted by anyone because it just came out. But the point is, in the long term, if they're truly high, that means they are hard to reach. That means when states don't begin to reach them, they start to say, how do we degrade them? And you can see this happening in districts and states around the country where they put in an exit exam, lots of kids don't do well, and they say, let's make this exam easier, let's lower our standards. And I don't see how just this political cover you're talking about is a sufficient bulwark to keep that. No, and, and well, let me suggest another alternative, though, which is what drove the governors um, and the chiefs starting a half a dozen years ago when they formed the American Diploma Project Network to work together, right? It is, and actually, this is the market at work. They don't want to lower their standards. Now, they may want some different things out of ESEA reauthorization. They may need time. They, uh, the current system of accountability might need to be really altered, but they do not want to lower their standards. It is not in their interest to continue to graduate kids who cannot go into good jobs and into college and be meaningful, productive citizens in their states. It is absolutely contrary to their own self-interest. And so that's why, that's why the governor started this. They need to aim high. It's a matter of economic survival. So I actually think the incentive, of course, are all, all kinds of incentives when it, you know, when, when you get deep into the political process. But at the end of the day, I think that is their goal. And they're going to, I think they will fight hard to make sure that that stays where it is and that the system actually rally around that high goal. And if that means taking more time to get there, if that means changing, you know, the current system of incentives and, uh, and, uh, and sanctions, I, I think that's where the discussion's not going to be had, not in the dumbing down of the standards, at least in the leading states. Home field advantage, one minute to Neil, and then we'll close and uh, head upstairs for lunch and refreshments. Well, I don't want to be the one who's responsible for us going late. I will only say <laughs> that, that the 30% remediation rate in college, the terrible graduation rate, have all come from a centralized system. Granted, it was five, 50 centralized systems. I don't see how, when we know why those fail, we think it'll be any different to have one centralized system. Can government work? We clearly think no, but hey, <laughs> anything could happen. Thank you. Thank you all for a lively debate. And... Uh, uh, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you.